This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. The CBO is a lot to tonight's speaker, uh, and let me tell you about Alice Rivlin's storied career. Uh, no one has done as much to advance the field of systematic policy analysis and the field of public policy analysis as Alice Rivlin. Uh, as many of you know, in the 60s there, and still today even, there are public administration schools. Public administration was concerned with how do you administer laws, how do you implement, not actually even how you implement, really how you administer them. Um, and it never really sort of stopped to ask very often, is this a good public policy or a bad public policy? And in the 60s, the notion grew that it was possible to actually analyze public policy and come up with better laws. And Alice Rivlin was at the center of this movement starting very early on. Um, she graduated from Rubin Mar in 1952 and immediately went to Europe and worked on the Marshall Plan, wrote a piece about the Marshall Plan uh, that was widely circulated and had an impact on post-war thinking about the Marshall Plan and I guess it was weapons uh, capability and the capability of Europe to produce uh, weapons and so forth. Um, in 1958, she graduated with a PhD in economics from Radcliffe College of Harvard University. Uh, she spent time at the Brookings Institution, one of the major policy analysis places in the country, in every decade since the 50s. Uh, but she's been in and out and doing other things. So, for example, in 1968-69, she was the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation at what was then known as Health, Education, and Welfare Department. That was under Lyndon Johnson. Uh, in 1970, she came to Berkeley and she gave a talk on systematic thinking in social action. That became a Brookings classic today and for many years was one of their best-selling books, and it was all about how to do a better job of actually analyzing public policy. Uh, she was the founding director of the Congressional Budget Office from 1975 to 1983. Uh, she got a MacArthur Genius Award in 1983. She was deputy director of OMB and then director of OMB during the Clinton administration from 94 to 96. That made her the first woman ever of cabinet rank. Notice the late date. Uh, took us a while. Uh, she was a, a member of the Federal Reserve Board, a governor of the Federal Reserve from 96 to 99, and also the Fed's vice chair. So she has held exceptionally high and important policy-making posts in the U.S. government. Now, that's just a part of what she did, and I'm not going to recount everything else, but all of this might not have happened except for a story she told at lunch today. And I hope you don't mind recounting this story. <laughs> so while in Europe, she decided that she was interested in this new field, which she wasn't quite sure what to name it, but it had to do with making better policies, like the Marshall Plan. And so she applied to the Litauer Public Administration School at Harvard University, thinking that was the perfect place for her. She got back a letter that said, They'd had unfortunate experiences with young women of marriageable age. And this is a letter that would be highly illegal today, uh, to say the least, and wrong then as well. Uh, 
and said, well, maybe she really shouldn't come to the Litauer Center. Uh, instead, she should apply elsewhere. Well, she applied to the economics department at Harvard, got in, got her degree, and then she set out systematically to change public administration, <laughs> which she did. And, of course, eventually the Harvard um, Litauer Center became the Kennedy School of Government, which focused on public policy analysis about the same time that the Goldman School of Public Policy began in the 1960s, late 1960s. Um, and she eventually served on their advisory board, no doubt reminding them, I hope, uh, <laughs> that they better do better in the future. Um, anyway, so all of this might not have happened except for that. Um, and uh, not that it was a good thing that she wasn't uh, admitted to the Litauer Center, but it is certainly a good thing that she completely changed in so many ways our thinking about what public policy could do. So let me welcome one of my heroes, and I think hero to many people in public policy, Alice Rivlin. Thank you for being here. Thank you for that uh, overly generous uh, uh, introduction, which I greatly appreciate. We did inherit a very interesting staff called the scorekeeping staff. And somebody, I think, had to explain to me what scorekeeping was. Uh, but it was extremely valuable to have uh, about, uh, I don't know, seven or eight uh, people who had actually worked for uh, the Joint Committee on the Budget or something like that. It was a committee that didn't actually exist. Uh, the, uh, the scorekeeping staff would go back and forth between the House and the Senate, uh, depending on uh, where uh, the action uh, was, and uh, uh, score bills, meaning saying, how much is this gonna, gonna cost? Uh, scorekeeping was important even then, although it has become much more important since. Um, it, its importance increased as uh, the, the world got more and more focused uh, on, uh, on the deficit. But uh, anyway, back then, uh, we were setting this whole thing up. We were very lucky to have John, and, uh, and he really... Uh, threw himself into it and then went on to a distinguished uh, career in which I think he used some of the things he learned at the, at the CBO and, uh, and taught about them and about, uh, about uh, other things. So uh, John uh, is one of the distinguished alumni of uh, the uh, uh, CBO. It's a good place to be from. Uh, people have gone on uh, to uh, high places in uh, in government and uh, and outside government uh, to two of the major uh, national security think tanks are now run uh, by uh, CBO alums. Um, so I'm very proud of the CBO. Uh, it's first that it is still there after 42 <laughs> 42 years. Uh, but that the tradition of uh, competent nonpartisan analysis uh, has uh, survived, and also uh, the uh, tradition of hiring very good people, a very hardworking uh, set of staffers, uh, when the Congress is crashing 
on a bill and needs a score, uh, these people work uh, around the clock uh, uh, to uh, get it uh, as close to right as they possibly can. And I always uh, wondered whether the Congress really knew uh, that there were people at the CBO at four o'clock in the morning trying to figure out what the right numbers uh, were when the members might actually not have known the difference, uh, but uh, CBO was very dedicated uh, uh, to, uh, to getting it right. And the other piece of the early tradition that I'm very proud of is CBO reports are quite readable. Uh, and uh, that really is a tradition that we established uh, at the uh, very beginning because we hired a bunch of scholars and uh, scholars uh, don't write the way uh, <laughs> people who need to do things and absorb information uh, quickly uh, uh, need to have it written down. Uh, and uh, early in my tenure, uh, I established a writing course. Um, and we thought about how are we going to get people to take this. Well, we better make it an honor. We better be able to say, you have been chosen uh, <laughs> for the opportunity uh, to uh, take this writing course. And we got a very good person from the Rand Corporation uh, to, uh, to teach it. And I think it, uh, it has made a difference uh, over the years, because we set a standard uh, that uh, if you're going to write about uh, uh, this uh, legislative stuff, uh, you better make it accessible to the people who legislate, uh, and you should picture your audience as a very tired congressman flying home uh, to his constituency uh, with a stack of reports in his briefcase, and if he's going to read yours, it better start with a paragraph that he can understand, or he's going to put it on the bottom of the, of the stack. Those traditions have survived, so has the partisan sniping uh, at uh, the CBO. And let me reminisce just a little bit, lest you think that uh, suddenly the CBO has come under attack. The most comparable situation to the current one, uh, in which the uh, high, high officials of the Trump administration and have said uh, they didn't believe the CBO numbers, uh, including the budget director. I was quite, uh, the, quite appalled by that. Uh, <laughs> but in, when uh, President Reagan was elected uh, in, <clears throat> in 1980 uh, to uh, start out in uh, early 1981, uh, he had been governor of California, as you, uh, and so he uh, is one one ahead of President Trump, who has never held public office. Uh, but he didn't know a lot, and neither did the very able Californians that he brought with him uh, about anything in Washington. Uh, I had the unusual uh, opportunity uh, because I was at this. Uh, department called Health, Education, and Welfare, which no longer exists, uh, to uh, help the uh, new administration uh, get started. 
And it was one of my little moments of real personal power uh, because they didn't know anything about what the department did. Uh, and uh, they uh, said, well, you know, what's this program? What's that program? Uh, and they had to make a budget amendment uh, uh, to the previous outgoing president's budget. Uh, and so I said, well, uh, you know, uh, this is a good program. <laughs> this one I think we could <laughs> not, not increase. Put a hundred million over there, produce this. And, uh, and they did it. <laughs> and it sailed on through the White House because there wasn't anybody there uh, who knew it. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Who knew better? Uh, who knew to second guesses uh, at that time? But in any case, uh, the Reagan administration came in with the notion that uh, here was this uh, appointed Democrat at the CBO, and they said we better get rid of her. Uh, the president didn't say that, and the budget director didn't say that, but staff around the president did, uh, and uh, the reaction in the Congress. Uh, was very gratifying to me. Uh, the leaders of the Congress, Bob Dole and, and uh, Pete Domenici, who was then the chairman of the, the Senate Budget Committee, uh, called the White House right away and said, I don't think you understand. She doesn't work for you. She works for us. <laughs> and she has a fixed term. And uh, that you're, she's, you're not replacing uh, the, uh, the CBO director. And uh, so they backed down. But uh, the CBO estimates have always been controversial. Um, if you are very much uh, in favor of passing a bill, uh, then uh, you uh, don't think, you think it'll do a lot of measurable good uh, and it won't cost very much. Uh, and if you're opposed to it, you think the opposite. Uh, and that's not surprising, uh, but um, I always thought if we were getting uh, slings and arrows from both sides uh, alternately or even sometimes at the same time, uh, that we were doing pretty well. So I'm not as worried about the future of the CBO as some people uh, seem to be. Um, my uh, the. Uh, uh, former directors of the CBO, some Republicans, some Democrats, all know each other and uh, have and, and communicate with each other. And the uh, last set of uh, blasts at CBO coming out of the administration uh, caused a flurry of emails, uh, and uh, there was to be a hearing, but the hearing got postponed. Uh, and uh, my, a lot of my fellow formers. Uh, were really worried. I'm less worried because I think that the last 42 years have proved that the Congress needs the CBO. Uh, and they're going to fuss uh, and fume about uh, uh, CBO estimates. Uh, but in the last analysis, they need them. Uh, and uh, they will uh, require them and they will use them. And uh, so I don't think the future of the CBO is really uh, under question. But uh, back in uh, the early days, um, we were really, I think, very optimistic uh, about 
how policy analysis uh, could uh, change uh, the world. Uh, my optimism went back further than that, uh, as the dean has, has mentioned, uh, because I had written a book uh, just before I came to CBO uh, called Systematic Thinking for Social Action. And uh, it was a pretty optimistic book about uh, how uh, decision uh, policy uh, could be made better by uh, looking at uh, the uh, effects and the costs of, uh, of programs and uh, new ideas. I still believe that, and I think it has, it has, um, it has happened. Policy analysis has been transformed in that uh, period. We have a lot more data. Uh, we have greatly improved uh, tools. Uh, both uh, the hardware, which does things in seconds that used to take longer, uh, and uh, the software and the uh, statistical techniques uh, that have gotten more sophisticated and solved some of the problems that uh, were uh, uh, justly uh, criticized uh, by uh, uh, previous uh, estimates. The policy challenges have also gotten more numerous and I think more complex. Uh, there's some very new ones, uh, or at least we weren't worrying about climate change uh, in those days. We weren't worrying about terrorism. We weren't worrying about uh, the rise of China. We were worrying about the rise of Japan, uh, which seems a little quaint uh, now. Uh, many of the uh, problems have uh, not been solved. That, that has, surprises me in uh, uh, retrospect. Uh, at the time I wrote Systematic Thinking, I thought it was going to have a rather short shelf life, uh, that uh, we were going to get on top of these problems uh, uh, like uh, poverty and uh, health care and tax reform and some of the national security uh, issues uh, uh, that uh, we, uh, we dealt with didn't happen. That book kept selling because the problems didn't, uh, didn't get solved and uh, even now uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit relevant. But uh, we were uh, optimists at the time. Now some of us worried uh, about uh, how to improve uh, the decision-making process on the Hill. John was actually uh, one of those how to make uh, it more attentive uh, to the longer run, uh, to things that uh, take a long time to develop and will take a long time to, to fix, how to make it less, less complex, how to make it uh, more uh, transparent. But we were not worried, I think, at the time about policy making totally breaking down. Uh, we uh, weren't worried about the survival of democracy in America. Uh, that wasn't uh, on, on our radar screen at all. But now it's 2017, and I, for one, and I'm not alone, am really worried about the collapse of the policy process on Capitol Hill. Uh, we have virtual gridlock uh, on... Uh, policy issues. Now, we are talking about some high-profile policies, uh, uh, like um, what 
uh, to do next about uh, financing health care. Uh, but you may notice we haven't done anything uh, about it. Uh, we're then the other one is of course tax reform. Uh, that may move ahead, uh, but I don't, don't don't hold your breath. Um, but in fact, almost no policy is being made on Capitol Hill. Uh, the process that we used to think was fairly routine of funding the government uh, as near as possible to the beginning of the fiscal year uh, has broken down. Uh, we can't even fund the government, the routine, regular functions of the, of the, the government, uh, for more than a few weeks at a time uh, in uh, recent years. Uh, and we aren't taking any action on the big problems that face this country uh, coming down uh, the road. We have partisan warfare, which I think is the, uh, the main uh, problem facing us. How do we uh, get uh, less partisan warfare? But the scene is anger, it's blaming, it's undercutting, it's demonizing, uh, and it precludes a, a bipartisan problem share, uh, problem solving, or consensus building, which is absolutely necessary in a divided country. In fact, it's necessary uh, almost anywhere. Uh, as anybody who has ever participated in a group decision, and that's what policy making is, uh, knows that it has to be a negotiating uh, process, uh, and it works best if people listen to each other. What do you think? <laughs> Why do you think that? Uh, here's what I think. Uh, and um, uh, work with each other to get the problem um, solved. Uh, it is especially necessary, I think now, uh, in a divided country, uh, and I'll come back to the divisions in a minute, but a divided country isn't going to have any policy uh, unless uh, the uh, two sides uh, work together uh, and uh, uh, negotiate out some of, uh, some of their differences. So we, what we have at the moment is a spectacle of dysfunction. Uh, and that's bad for our domestic future. It's bad for our international uh, leadership ability. Um, and it's bad for the professional uh, policy analysts uh, because they do have a sense that uh, there are all these bullets flying back and forth and nobody really cares uh, about uh, the important policy, uh, policy issues. Now at the moment I think we're really lucky that our economy is doing as well as it is. Uh, plus President Trump really lucked out. Uh, he, he doesn't acknowledge that, but uh, unlike uh, President Obama, he walked into an economy which was doing pretty well, but can do much better. We're facing really serious uh, challenges. Uh, those of us who, and that I think includes everybody, Republicans and Democrats, would like to see uh, an economy that grows somewhat faster 
and uh, distributes the fruits of that growth uh, more widely uh, are uh, united on where we'd uh, like to go. Uh, but clearly, uh, the path to getting there uh, is, uh, is uh, uh, strewn with hurdles, uh, like dealing with climate change, like dealing with uh, uh, growing inequality and lagging wages and productivity, uh, like the fact that we have an aging workforce uh, and, uh, and a uh, rising debt. Uh, those are not problems uh, that... Uh, uh, will get better by themselves. Uh, they are mostly problems that will get worse if we don't do something. And so the tragedy of a uh, policy-making process uh, which uh, can't even fund the government for three months uh, and isn't talking about any of those things at the moment uh, is really uh, a, a, a serious thing. Uh, and the other problem, I think, or the other characteristic that so many of these challenges have uh, are uh, that getting on top of them, whether you're talking about the rising debt or climate change uh, or whatever, uh, is going to require some long-term thinking and some sacrifice as well as gain. Uh, sacrifice uh, uh, investment now for a brighter future. Uh, and uh, that is the kind of problem that requires bipartisan consensus. Uh, because we're acting now as though we have a government um, in uh, more like a, par like a Westminster parliamentary system uh, where uh, the uh, party that has a majority uh, can uh, dictate the policy uh, for uh, as long as they can maintain a majority and don't, uh, don't have to call another election. Our system isn't set up that way, and it shouldn't be set up that way. Uh, our Constitution uh, requires, because we are a big, diverse country, uh, re requires compromise at almost every stage. Uh, the Founding Fathers knew uh, that uh, in a country of this size and diversity, or even the diversity that it had at that time, uh, uh, urban and rural and, and north and south, uh, that they were going to have to uh, pr proceed very, very slowly. The Constitution itself had lots of compromises in it, compromises we wouldn't make today about slavery, for example but we're the only way to get uh, 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 those diverse states uh, to be uh, one, uh, one nation. And they were afraid of both mob rule and, uh, uh, and against uh, 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 of a strong executive. They'd just gotten rid of a strong executive. Uh, so they set it up so that there had to be multiple compromises uh, within the House uh, between the House and the Senate, between the Congress and the President, and sometimes with the courts. Uh, and we have forgotten that that is of the essence of, uh, of policy making. Um, it, well, I'll come back to that. Um, 
So why has this happened to us, and uh, and especially uh, what can uh, we do? It's very easy to blame President Trump, um, but President Trump is a symptom, uh, not a cause of the <clears throat> uh, current uh, situation. He has exacerbated the divisions, uh, uh, but he didn't create them. Uh, he's creating a dilemma, or the situation creates a dilemma, uh, for uh, those who are appalled at uh, uh, some of the things he's doing, uh, because if they blame Trump, uh, then they're going to alienate a lot of people who voted for, for him. Um, my colleagues, uh, 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 E.J. Dione, uh, Tom Mann, and Norm Ornstein, uh, have written a wonderful book, which I commend to all of you. Uh, it is, uh, it is a, a terrific book uh, called One Nation After Trump. Um, and it um, analyzes uh, in quite detailed terms how we got here, but and uh, makes uh, good suggestions about what we ought to do to get back to more civil discourse and more productive uh, policy making. But I think it makes a huge tactical mistake uh, in the title, uh, because that suggests Trump was to blame for all this. Uh, and uh, if you read the first uh, few chapters, uh, you can you read them thinking, if I were the audience they want to convince, uh, namely people who voted for Trump, uh, would I read any further? And I think the answer is no. Uh, <clears throat> one of the, the big problems now is how does how do people who think things are wrong uh, appeal uh, to those who uh, are on the other side of, of uh, a presidential debate? Um, so it, it's easy to blame Trump. It's also very easy to blame polarization. Uh, and polarization is uh, very real. Uh, the uh, Parties have uh, moved uh, to uh, opposite sides. Uh, of the, the middle is falling apart in the Congress anyway, not necessarily in the country. But um, we've been polarized before, uh, and really quite dramatically in the Vietnam War, uh, at other times of our history, and our policy-making process did not fall apart uh, in the sense that it has now. We went on funding the government, we went on passing laws, uh, building highways, doing other things uh, that, uh, that had to be done, and argued about the particular polarizing issue. Uh, that isn't, is what is not happening uh, right now. And we're spending a lot of time talking about how did we get so polarized. It, um, I think there is a long list of causes. Uh, it's been a long time coming, actually. 
but um, certainly one can focus on our uh, election system, uh, on the effect of primaries, where uh, only the dedicated party faithful uh, uh, bother uh, to vote, uh, on uh, gerrymandering uh, in, uh, of uh, congressional districts, and uh, on uh, the fact that uh, gerrymandering has been made easier by the fact that we sort ourselves out uh, and live with people who uh, live, uh, uh, who uh, uh, look and think uh, like us. Uh, I just uh, read uh, a book which I also uh, commend to you, although I won't tell you the title, uh, is by uh, David uh, Daly uh, uh, about uh, the uh, importance of gerrymandering after the tw uh, 2010 uh, uh, census. Uh, and uh, I've been amused at my political science friends because they're lining up on one side or, or the other. Uh, either you agree with Bill Bishop, who wrote a wonderful book about, uh, called The Great Sort, uh, and about how we're sorting ourselves out, or you agree with David Daly uh, that uh, gerrymandering uh, has uh, been extremely effective, especially in the last few years, and is greatly aided uh, by uh, big data and the technology of processing data. What are we arguing about? Both are right uh, and uh, have uh, contributed uh, to uh, the, uh, uh, the polarization uh, in, uh, in the Congress and uh, in state legislatures and, uh, and everywhere. You can focus on the cultural backlash uh, to, uh, uh, to changes that have occurred extremely rapidly in all of our uh, lifetimes. Uh, you can focus on big money, you can focus on uh, media fragmentation, on the role of uh, social media in legitimizing incivility, which uh, uh, despite all of its good things, it certainly uh, does. You can focus, as economists like me generally do, uh, on uh, the economic factors on our uh, lagging uh, wages and lagging productivity, uh, on the fact that uh, many uh, people uh, with less education have been left behind uh, and uh, whole communities have been devastated by the movement of jobs uh, uh, or, uh, to uh, other countries or by technological change or both, and it's mostly both. Um, and uh, uh, on other uh, causes, but uh, it, it, the point is, I think, um, that uh, we can correct some of these things, like primary reform where California is on the, the leading edge, uh, like uh, redistricting uh, and uh, uh, like independent commissions for uh, redistricting, we can certainly realize uh, that polarization makes policy making harder, but I don't think it makes it impossible. The past does not prove that, and uh, uh, we uh, need to learn, if we're going to be a polarized society, how to make policy again uh, across uh, the, the divides, or we won't make policy at all.
we will allow our economy to uh, uh, be uh, <clears throat> weaker because we're not doing really obvious stuff like uh, upgrading our infrastructure. I mean, we used to, <laughs> that used to be a bipartisan consensus. Uh, and President Trump campaigned on it, uh, but uh, uh, we don't have enough comedy between the parties at the moment to get an infrastructure bill uh, through the Congress. We've got to somehow uh, get back uh, to uh, the uh, realization that uh, policymaking is essentially a negotiating and um, uh, compromising uh, process. Uh, and if we don't do that, uh, we'll, we'll be in, uh, in, huge, uh, in huge trouble. Um, the Affordable Care Act, and repealing or replacing it, <clears throat> is certainly uh, the uh, um, most extreme example right now of, of the tragedy of, uh, of doing policy this way. We need not have had this agony. Uh, first place, uh, the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act, which has come to be demonized as something which is going to transform America, was going to transform America, uh, is actually in, mo in, in its most important and controversial uh, uh, aspects, a niche program, a rather small program. Most people have health insurance. Most people are covered by their employers or by Medicare or by Medicaid. And we had been worrying back uh, in the Clinton administration and before that about the growing number of people who weren't covered by any of those programs, but there aren't really very many of them. Uh, these were the people who had to buy uh, uh, insurance uh, on their own in the individual insurance market, uh, which everybody acknowledged was a terrible market uh, uh, because insurance companies engaged in uh, trying uh, to make money by having only the healthiest customers uh, rather than by uh, competing with each other for uh, improving uh, service. Uh, so we were trying to figure out how do you fill this uh, uh, this small uh, niche. And uh, the Democrats, uh, I think, thinking that uh, the only way to get it done was to pick something Republicans would like, uh, namely a market-oriented program, uh, picked Romney's program uh, from, uh, from Massachusetts, uh, did, uh, made some mistakes in the way they implemented it uh, uh, or proposed uh, to implement it. It's very hard to make a new market work and to figure out some of the things that CBO was asked to figure out, how many people are going to buy this insurance, uh, how many people are going to pay attention to a mandate because you need a, a mandate or something like a mandate to get healthy people into the, into the pool. Um, and uh, they probably uh, could have uh, designed it better. Uh, if in 20, uh, 2009, 2010, uh, they had been able to work across the aisle uh, and, and uh, pull in some Republican votes. I don't think we'd be having this conversation at all uh, if there had been enough uh, Republican support 
so that it couldn't be labeled Obamacare and uh, demonized in this way, uh, we would probably have revised it several times uh, in the last uh, few years to correct the mistakes, which is what used to happen in the Congress uh, when you passed a bill and it didn't work out exactly like you thought. Uh, then you passed some amendments that made it work better. Uh, and uh, a classic example of that was go, goes back to uh, President Reagan on taxes. Uh, he campaigned on this big tax reform and, and CBO scored it uh, uh, in one hectic night uh, in uh, uh, 1981. Uh, and uh, it uh, worked out uh, not quite as, it worked out to create more deficits than they had admitted. Uh, and uh, got corrected. They went back to the drawing board and passed other tax bills in the next several years that took back some of the benefits. Uh, that used to be sort of normal, uh, but it isn't anymore. And uh, the, uh, the fact that uh, no, no uh, Republicans voted for it, uh, it put us in this uh, position of of uh, uh, their saying we're going to repeal it uh, or we're going to repeal and replace it uh, because it's associated only with Democrats and we can do better. Uh, and that was very short-range thinking, I think. Uh, the, again, it falls in the category of uh, a major piece of social legislation that is going to provide benefits and also require sacrifices because you have to pay for it. Uh, and that's the kind of legislation that simply cannot be passed by one party alone, even if the Budget Act says uh, if it's budget, uh, if it meets certain characteristics, uh, you only need uh, 50 votes. Dumb not to uh, want to have a lot more uh, votes uh, for it. So uh, how do we get the parties working together again? I think this is the problem uh, for public policy schools uh, to uh, be working on uh, for the next several years because if we don't solve it, uh, we're not going to have any public policy, and public and policy analysis isn't going to be taken very seriously at the federal level. Now, uh, I do think that one should remember, uh, especially in the great country of California, uh, that <laughs> uh, that states matter, uh, and uh, for those of you who are wavering uh, with your newly minted uh, Goldman degrees about going to Washington, uh, you got a lot of other options. <laughs> the one consequence of the gridlock uh, already, but certainly as we move ahead, uh, is going to be more and more of the action, uh, for better or worse, uh, moving uh, to, uh, to the states. Uh, that was actually one of the things that I learned in my job that we talked about at Health Education and Welfare way back in the 1960s because we were sitting there in rooms uh, on Independence Avenue uh, working on regulations that were supposed to apply 
uh, to, I think it was 35,000 school districts across the country, uh, or however many uh, health uh, operations, you don't do that very well. The country's too big and too diverse. Uh, so much of the action has to be passed uh, to the states with guidelines about what is a national uh, requirement here. Uh, and um, uh, so uh, jobs are going to be, going in public policy and uh, policy analysis are going to be more and more available at the state level. And states are pretty competent places, especially this one, but not only this one. Uh, and remember, there are an awful lot of states between here and the East Coast. <laughs> Don't fly over them. Take them seriously. Um, but I have been puzzling about how we uh, make this, how we get the parties together, and discovered, as some of you have, uh, that a lot of people are trying. And there are various strategies. Uh, one is to work with the existing Congress uh, and uh, try to uh, bring uh, people uh, together on particular issues or uh, in general. Uh, no Labels is an interesting uh, group uh, which has now a, uh, formed, it was first a lot of people getting together for breakfast. Uh, and now it is an actual caucus called the Problem Solvers Caucus uh, that has around uh, 40 members, half Republicans and half Democrats, and is uh, working to find common ground, uh, among other things, uh, on how do you stabilize the uh, health insurance markets, uh, but they have other things on their list. A small start to 10% of the House. Uh, but uh, uh, they're hopeful. Uh, and uh, I work with the Bipartisan Policy Center. Uh, there are others uh, that uh, um, the, uh, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget and uh, its uh, companion organization called Fix the Debt uh, have been working for a long time to try to bring uh, people together uh, on uh, uh, reducing the growth of debt, we came very close to winning. Uh, I was a member of the Simpson-Bowles Commission and also another uh, commission at the uh, Bipartisan Policy Center that uh, back in 2010-11 uh, 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 worked on uh, the problem of how do you uh, take uh, serious action to keep the debt from rising as a percent of GDP. Uh, it's not a very difficult problem. You only have two options. You can rein in, uh, reduce uh, the growth of spending on the uh, entitlement programs, especially the health uh, entitlement programs, uh, or you can fix the tax system so that it uh, raises more revenue more efficiently. Uh, much of the rest of the budget has already been cut, and it's been cut more since then, uh, and uh, doesn't offer much uh, opportunity for fixing the growth of future debt. Uh, so everybody knows what the options are, and uh, we came pretty close, I think, to getting agreement in 2010, 2011. Uh, but then it all went downhill from there. 
and uh, nothing. No, there's no conversation about the the debt anymore. Of zero. Uh, it's uh, and yet it's still growing at 77 percent of the GDP, and uh, we should do something about it. Uh, one can work at the st at uh, uh, making. Uh, the uh, Congress more moderate, uh, meaning primary reform and some of the things that uh, people have looked at, not terribly obviously uh, effective, but uh, certainly uh, worth, uh, worth a try. Uh, uh, or one can mobilize some of this big money uh, to support candidates uh, that uh, are uh, not extreme. Or one can mobilize some uh, money, and a group called the Centrist Project is trying to do this, to support independence, centrist independence, with the idea that they could be the ones who move back and forth between the parties and try to uh, broker a deal. All of those things are important, uh, and uh, I would say let's do let's do as many of them as we uh, possibly can. But I think the role of educational institutions has got to be uh, played seriously. And, per, and one could do worse than starting with public policy schools. Uh, public policy schools do a lot of teaching that says, here's how it ought to work. Uh, here's how it used to work. Uh, here's why it has broken down. Uh, but I don't think very much about what to do about it, and particularly training future leaders, and that's what you are, uh, to practice the art of uh, negotiation. And compromise is a, is a dirty word, so I hesitate to use it. Uh, uh, building consensus uh, may be better. Uh, building acceptable policy that uh, uh, the public uh, can, uh, that both parties and the public can uh, support. Uh, take the techniques of actually getting uh, to uh, getting a solution to uh, problems on which uh, uh, views uh, differ sharply uh, have been uh, defined and worked on. But they need to be practiced. If you don't come into public office with a base of thinking about uh, how do I work with people whose uh, views are different uh, to achieve some solutions here, you're in trouble. Uh, so I'd like to start in middle school, uh, but um, and uh, turn out uh, students through through high school who have practiced uh, these uh, these techniques. Uh, but um, uh, uh, until we get, find a way of doing that, uh, one could start at the Goldman School uh, and build into uh, the public policy curriculum, uh, not just a course in conflict resolution, I'm sure you have one, uh, uh, <laughs> and negotiation. Build it into all of the courses on, on, uh, on substantive issues. And let people practice uh, how uh, to uh, to do this. So finally, back uh, to the CBO and to policy analysis. Uh, I don't think policy analysis is really uh, threatened uh, over my lifetime. 
uh, politicians have become more and more dependent uh, on uh, uh, estimates and uh, on uh, knowing what the effect, and especially the future effects, of their uh, policies are uh, likely to be. Uh, so uh, uh, whether you work at the federal or the state level, or indeed in think tanks and uh, uh, even uh, in uh, lobbying organizations who, have to, who want to come in to the conversation armed uh, with uh, some uh, uh, good evidence and facts because they'll be more believable. Uh, whatever route uh, you, you choose, uh, I think that uh, uh, policy analysis will be there. But the real threat to it is the partisan uh, warfare and the party's unwillingness uh, to uh, work uh, with each other. And uh, until we solve that, uh, we're not going to have good policy. Uh, so I would uh, commend to you, uh, hope, uh, that all of you would uh, go out and uh, uh, work on the solutions to the partisan warfare problem as well as on doing good policy analysis. Thank you. Thank you. So we have some people with microphones, I think, who can run around. But I'm going to start by asking the first question while folks formulate your questions. Uh, there's been lots of great subject matter here, I think, to ask questions about. So I'm hoping you're going to have some, some great questions. Um, I want to ask you about the title we had, which was about fake news. Uh, it seems to me that on the one hand, it used to be, for example, in Washington, when anybody had a problem, they would say, what we need is a new Marshall Plan. And then they would come up with some idea of whatever that meant. And usually it was sort of a really half-baked idea. And I think CBO and other institutions in Washington now discipline people by making them think a little bit more about, well, what do you mean by a Marshall Plan? How would that really work? And is that anywhere near a solution to this problem? So and that's, how much would it cost? Yeah, partly because they say, well, what are the costs and benefits? And, you know, what do you, I mean, it, you know, the Marshall Plan is it's, it's a complicated plan to begin with, but, but it, we just at least don't have that simplicity that we used to have. So that's good news. So that suggests that, in fact, the old form of what might be called fake news, which was the notion that a Marshall Plan would solve any problem, or a moonshot, or, oh. uh, you know, a new agricultural extension service, all yeah. of these were sort of favorite nostrums of members of Congress. So that maybe has gone a bit by the wayside. But now we're faced with this notion that people really just question fundamental facts. And I do worry that the CBO at some point is going to really be frontally attacked by people who say that's just truly fake news and that will undermine the efficacy of CBO. Right, well, and yeah, I mean, and, and I know it's in process and happening, but I guess I'm, I'm worried that it'll be successful. Yeah. yeah. And so, well, do you think this is a different time and that we really have sort of a new attack on basic rationality? Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think uh, there has been attack on rationality for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is a new feature to have the President of the United States 
questioning facts, including facts that were obviously provable. Uh, it's uh, that is a new and I think dangerous uh, uh, feature, and social media, which I. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's here to stay. Uh, I think it's had enormous benefits, and it has, in many ways, tied people together uh, around uh, interests and family and other things that uh, that uh, uh, that were much harder to uh, tie them together around. Uh, but uh, it it does. The whole internet has this problem of. Uh, not being verifiable, uh, and or not uh, easily, and I do remember the student some years ago who, when I questioned a fact in in his paper, said, I asked him for a source. Uh, he said, "Oh, I got it off the internet." Uh, well, yes, uh, but I <laughs> I do think that. Uh, uh, most people uh, still can distinguish uh, uh, fake uh, news uh, or have a sense that there is a difference between fake news and things that that are uh, based on uh, uh, some evidence and experience and uh, we're we're so um, uh, conflicted about this or, or so inconsistent about it uh, Especially the belief in science. Now, uh, people are denying the science of uh, climate change. I think for only political reasons, but um, they believe in science for almost everything else. Right. They um, go to their doctor. And they, they go to their doctor. They support more research on on uh, diseases. They believe that cures. Uh, will be found. They fly in airplanes. Yes, they I mean, fly in airplanes. Uh, they they use their smartphones. Uh, I, I I think the fake news thing is largely attributable uh, to the partisan warfare. And if we could solve that, that it would uh, not be easy because it's never easy to verify things. Uh, but uh, it wouldn't be such a problem. So let's get a question from the audience or a bunch. I see one over there. Please use the microphone. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I have a quick question about different economic theories and so different ways of thinking about facts. So instead of just necessarily rejecting a fact as an alternative fact or not true or fake news, um, how do you and how does CBO wrestle with just different economic theories or different ways of analyzing the fact? And so I can think about for example, think tanks that might come up with radically different estimates or different assumptions about policies based on ideology and based on their economic uh, beliefs or the, the way that they think the world works. But, um, but how does the CBO wrestle with that? And, um, and how do we get around two you know, firms or two think tanks that use evidence and analysis but come up with remarkably different um, out, outputs, basically? Thank you. Well, I think they're, you know, they're, um, in the first place, I think non-economists uh, generally exaggerate how much difference there is among economists. 
uh, uh, I'm married to one, and people say to us frequently, do you argue all the time? Uh, not about that. <laughs> uh, but uh, take uh, the effect of tax cuts, for example. Uh, there certainly is a strong belief among uh, people who think the government does too much anyway uh, that uh, tax, uh, lower taxes uh, would um, uh, have a very positive effect on economic growth even at a time when we have full employment. I've never quite understood how the mechanism works there uh, because actually the only way you grow an economy faster is uh, you have more people working or those people are more productive. Uh, but I think the theory is uh, if you cut taxes, there will be more resources uh, for investment in productivity growth. Uh, and Democrats who think the government would, should be doing more for people uh, tend to poo-poo that. We have quite a lot of evidence on, on this accumulated uh, over the years. And uh, I think the summary would be, uh, yes, uh, you get uh, some positive effects out of uh, uh, lowering uh, taxes, especially marginal uh, tax rates but not very big effects. And you do have the problem of uh, uh, an increasing debt, which likely uh, has negative effects. And when you do a really serious analysis of uh, the pluses and minuses, uh, I think you can get most people to agree, yes, there's some effects, but they aren't, uh, they aren't very uh, large. Now, that's uh, uh, doing serious analysis. Uh, is it always going to be uh, a good slogan to say, uh, uh, I'm going to cut your taxes? Sure. I mean, who wouldn't vote for somebody who was going to cut your taxes? Uh, and um, uh, so I think that's going to be around, uh, around for a while. Um, I, the other... Uh, my, the other example that springs to my, uh, to my mind is there used to be enormous contention uh, between uh, uh, the, the uh, people who thought that monetary policy uh, should be run by uh, a rule about uh, how fast the money supply uh, should increase uh, and those who thought uh, it uh, should be adjusted to what was actually happening in the economy. That uh, argument has mostly gone away uh, in, uh, in the economic uh, profession, in partly because we don't know what money is anymore. Uh, we have so many forms of money uh, that a simple rule of uh, uh, control the money supply so it will only grow at X rate uh, is impossible to implement. Uh, and uh, that's a little overly simplistic, but uh, uh, a lot of these kind of old theoretical discussions are mostly uh, uh, not as important as they used to be, but the basic attitude of we want the government to do more or we want the government to do less is definitely there and it's going to be around forever, I think, especially in the U United States where we have a tradition of very long standing of being anti-government.
Another question? Hi, thank you. Um, I was wondering to what degree um, does the CBO make their methods of analyses transparent and um, so that so that critics and scholars can critique it and uphold its accountability and if it doesn't make those methods transparent um, why not and if you can tell us that and um, and then what does uphold the accountability um, there are experts sitting in the front row who know exactly what CBO does, but I will give them I'll give them my attempt at the answer. I think CBO has, has uh, historically done uh, as, uh, uh, quite a, a remarkably good job of uh, explaining uh, how it gets estimates and uh, how it makes estimates, and also of going back as near well as possible to where they made mistakes uh, and why they made them and uh, to uh, correcting uh, the uh, estimates in the light of, of, uh, of new information. Uh, back when I was director, it has not faded, there was always this idea that uh, we had some models which would tell us everything and uh, we would just run the numbers through the models. We well, wouldn't need very many people to do that, actually. Uh, and, but if you think about uh, the uh, problems that CBO faces, uh, especially on uh, cost estimates or uh, of, of a future uh, piece of legislation, there are no models of the future. You're always looking at uh, what can we infer from what happened in the past uh, as to what, what might happen as a result of this piece of legislation? Uh, if it were existing law, you wouldn't be worrying about it. Uh, and um, uh, most of those things can't be modeled. Uh, they can be uh, you pull information from as many places as you can find it, uh, and you can tell people what you kind of information you use to do this, uh, and CBO generally does, uh, but uh, it isn't as a situation in which you can just say, here's the model, uh, set of equations, assumptions that we fed in, um, we think results came out the other end. So um, very, very hard to uh, uh, get people to understand that there, there isn't some cut and dried way to do it. Uh, they aren't withholding anything. They just did something uh, that was uh, uncertain. Another question? Over here. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm a huge fan of metaphors, and a metaphor you used earlier was a spectacle dysfunction. So I want to compliment you on that. I really enjoyed that. And uh, I think speak that, a little louder. Oh, okay, I'll put gotcha. It yeah, sorry. Mouth, yeah. I'll put it closer to my mouth. There we go. That sounds better. All right. Uh, so earlier, uh, one of the first metaphors you used was a spectacle of dysfunction to refer to the partisan warfare that's happening in the yeah. country, in particular in government. 
And so you also said that fake news might be a consequence of the partisan warfare. I like the metaphor because I, uh, I'm curious what you think can be done to reduce the spectacular nature of the partisan warfare such that perhaps it can be resolved because I think there's an incentive to it keep going if people are entertained by it. Yes, yeah. uh, I, I agree that this, the, yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is, but certainly the question is right. Uh, and it's not just the Congress. Uh, if you watch, uh, I watched CNN last night, uh, and they, they try very hard, whatever the issue is, uh, to get two people with uh, uh, polar views uh, and get them yelling at each other. Uh, and then my aging ears can't even pick up what they're talking about. Uh, but um, uh, it's, it's thought to be uh, entertaining. Um, that's a problem. Uh, and, uh, and the same is true of, uh, of political life. Uh, if you... Uh, yell extreme things, and we, we had such a spectacle that in the last uh, campaign, um, then, uh, uh, you know, you have a spectacle, but you, uh, you don't have serious discussion of, of, uh, of the issues. And it's always been hard to have that in campaigns. Um, and I don't know how we get rid of that, except the public is very turned off. Uh, by the fact that the Congress is uh, so dysfunctional, isn't getting anything done, uh, and um, the main uh, beef that uh, uh, his fellow Republicans have with the president uh, is, you haven't gotten anything done, uh, I think, but uh, who knows. Uh, that President Trump actually had an enormous opportunity uh, because he wasn't beholden to a Republican Party. Uh, he'd come parachuting in from the outside. If he'd had enough knowledge of policy itself, uh, he had this huge opportunity to reach across the aisle and say, look what I did. Uh, I got the Congress functioning again. Uh, together we did these great things. We reformed the tax code. We replaced uh, the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, he would have said Obamacare uh, in uh, in uh, in a way that is more workable. Uh, I, mean, I think he could have been a hero by today uh, to uh, much of the public, and he didn't take that chance. Uh, I think we've got to find some leaders that that uh, that will, uh, and do some of the things that I talked about that will increase the chances of getting those kinds of people uh, in uh, in policy making, uh, in elected office, uh, and uh, work as hard of it as as we possibly can. But the spectacle problem is a spectacle. It's it's a real problem. Yeah, I guess I'm also hoping that perhaps the American public will get tired of the spectacle. It is, I, I at least I'm exhausted by it. I must say, and I imagine many of us are now. Maybe the rest of the country isn't as attentive as the rest of us, and so since we're so attentive, you get really really tired about it. But maybe eventually they will, and they'll look for the old. People like you know, Bob Dole and Pete Domenici, really dull people who I'd really <laughs> love to have around these days. Yeah. Well, not obvious yet. I mean, we did have John Kasich in the Republican. And John Kasich, talk about good old dull John Kasich yes. would have been much better than this. Um, anyway, uh, more questions over here?
so um, I have a question, which is, I wonder, uh, sorry, over here, uh, what you think about um, the, uh, the, the argument that uh, you could make on, on two of the issues we talked about, Obamacare, when it initially passed, and the Democrats waited a long time in that gang of whatever it was, trying to get some Republicans on board and then weren't able to do that, uh, and then passed it in a, uh, and, and you could argue that's the reason they adopted the Republican <coughs> policy. They were trying to do exactly what you, what you suggested, uh, which was reach some compromise with the other side. It was a strategy to do that. And then the budget deal, which I think was, uh, uh, was something that Obama really went out on a limb on in 2011 uh, to try to accomplish uh, in the exact same way of trying to reach across the aisle and do it and, and failed. And so there are certainly people who make the argument that this is a problem that is one of the Republicans uh, not being willing to compromise and come across the aisle. And I'm, I'm wondering what you, th what you think about that argument. Obviously, it's one that sells here at Berkeley, but, um, but what you think about it. Um. Um, I think the Republicans have uh, been more at fault than the Democrats, but I'm a Democrat. Uh, and I don't think the Democrats are blameless. Uh, when they took over in uh, whatever year it was toward the end of the Bush administration, uh, uh, they were not very uh, cooperative uh, with the Republicans in a lot of small things that uh, uh, cause rancor uh, uh, and you know, keeping them out of me meetings and not uh, disclosing what they were doing, and I don't know what all. But uh, uh, the uh, the the Democrats have not been uh, blameless. It's been a tit for tat uh, thing, uh, and uh, the demonizing has not all been on one side uh, either. Uh, I worked with Paul Ryan on a Medicare reform uh, called premium support, uh, which I think uh, is a, a, a plausible way uh, of, uh, to uh, reform uh, Medicare in the long run. He had a very severe, uh, stingy uh, way of doing it at the beginning. And, but he sought me out uh, in, uh, when we were on Simpson Bowles and, uh, because he knew I'd been working on this uh, with uh, Senator Pete Domenici and, uh, and uh, said, can we do a, a bipartisan uh, proposal here? And he moved very fast to the middle. Uh, it didn't take much argument at all. Uh, and uh, we, were, uh, didn't, we did it too late to sell it to Simpson Bowles. Uh, but uh, he later worked with uh, Ron Wyden on a bill. Uh, but the Democrats were intent on demonizing uh, premium support and saying it would uh, end Med Medicare as we know it. Well, look, folks, Medicare as we know it isn't sustainable financially, uh, so we've got to, to reform it in some ways. And that was one way. It wasn't necessarily the best way, but it was worth talking about. Uh, and uh, the Democrats uh, uh, produced a wonderful political ad, uh, the best one I have ever seen in my life, uh, in which uh, they showed this uh, tall, lanky 
figure from the back who looked very much like Paul Ryan, uh, pu <laughs> pushing a sweet little old lady uh, in a wheelchair, and uh, she's looking up at him, and, and uh, they're moving along, and then suddenly they come to a cliff, and he, he, he pushes her over. Uh, and then the tagline was something about that's what the Republicans want to do to Medicare. They want to throw Granny off the cliff. Well, uh, <laughs> as I said, the demonizing is not all on one side. Let's get Brad in here. Don't um, Ryan's premium support was remarkably low, was more strident than I would have expected Henry Aaron to object to a Republican proposal. Um, but back up, you know, um, you Democrats. Um, Barack Obama came into office with a very strong belief that there were no red states, <coughs> states and no only purple states. And that was his huge applause line in the 2004, president, or 2004 presidential nomination convention speech. He came into office trying to follow Mitt Romney's health care policy, John McCain's climate policy, um, Bill Clinton's tax policy, including the extra mile trying to find space for entitlement cuts via sponsoring Simpson Bowles, George H.W. Bush's foreign policy, Gerald Ford's worried about overpressuring the Fed and about how it was necessary to avoid too high pressure on economy for fear of reigniting inflation, and Ronald Reagan's optimism. And yeah, that sounds very much like the president you are asking for. What should Obama have done differently other than not be black? Um. In the first place, I agree with <laughs> your analysis. It was, uh, I mean, I think he genuinely wanted uh, to uh, uh, to be by to to lead a bipartisan uh, coalition, and um, part of the reason that he never was successful was he inherited the worst economy in in our lifetimes. Uh, and uh, uh, got uh, got blamed for uh, the uh, the crash, the bailout, which was not done on his watch, uh, and uh, so forth, uh, and had a the misfortune of having a Repub Republican leadership that at that moment uh, saw the opportunity to obstruct. Uh, rather than to cooperate, um, and uh, you know, I think there are a few things he could have done better, but they probably wouldn't have saved uh, this situation. Um, first, I uh, think he could have uh, uh, endorsed the Simpson Bowles proposal, uh, or at least, and this we're talking uh, State of the Union in 2011. Uh, he had endorsed the commission, and he'd met with us, and he'd been terrific uh, in the uh, in the meeting. And one of the Republicans that I walked out with said, "He really cares about this stuff, doesn't he?" And I said, "Yes. Didn't you think he did?" And he said, "No." Uh, and uh, it wasn't Ryan; it was a senator. But um, the uh, uh, when it came 
to his opportunity to uh, take the report and say, I appointed this commission, they've done a good job, I don't agree with all of it, but I'm going to work with the Congress to get it done. He didn't do it. And, and uh, uh, he told us that, or he told uh, uh, Bowles, that uh, the reason he didn't was uh, that uh, the situation had gotten so bitter that if he endorsed it, uh, the Republicans would trash it. That may have been true, uh, but I think he should probably should have done it uh, anyway. He was not good. He, I think he believed in, in reaching across the aisle. He was not good at doing it. Uh, Ryan told me, um, probably in 2010, that he'd never had a conversation with the president. Now, Ryan wasn't speaker then. He was chairman of the budget committee. But that's ridiculous. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton would have been schmoozing the budget or, uh, committee chairman to uh, uh, a fairly well. Uh, Barack Obama wasn't very good at that. And uh, neither were some of the people around him, though some of them uh, some of them tried. Another evening on the Hill, I was at a bipartisan dinner that the Committee for the Responsible Federal Budget or somebody had pull, put together. It was the day after the first time he'd invited a group of uh, Republicans to the White House. They were like kids. They said, oh, he, he's so interesting. He's so, uh, we, we had dinner with the president. Uh, <laughs> I was hopeful after that that he might do it again, uh, but uh, he didn't. Uh, the, there, there was not a, he, he wasn't easy in the way that Clinton was in the give and take and the, uh, it, it, uh, and how much of it was, uh, uh, I think it was just his own professorial personality, actually. Uh, well, we've... <laughs> uh, and I am one. Uh, but, but let me say one more thing. Uh, the, the blame game is just fine and everybody engages in it. It's totally irrelevant. Where do we go from here? How do we fix this thing? Uh, and the obsession that some of my colleagues have, Henry's one, uh, you mentioned Henry Aaron, uh, with uh, saying, but it's all the Republicans' fault. Uh, and uh, bipartisanship is, uh, is just uh, compromising with people we shouldn't compromise with. And I think there are some things that shouldn't be compromised, uh, but I don't think there are very many of them in economic policy. Economic policy mostly doesn't have principles that have to be uh, guarded. Uh, there's a lot of that in, in, in human rights and so forth. But an economic policy is usually uh, a continuum. Uh, it's where you're positioned along a continuum on the dimensions of large or small government or the dimensions of more or less regulation or the dimensions of personal responsibility versus community responsibility. There's a spectrum on all of those things. Uh, and uh, it, there are trade-offs and negotiating room and 
nobody is for no government, uh, maybe some anarchists in California, uh, but <laughs> and nobody's for the government taking over everything. Uh, the spectrum on economic policy in this country is actually fairly narrow. It's getting wider, but it's fairly narrow compared to a lot of other countries. So I, I think the blaming the other side is fun, but not very constructive. And the idea that you can't talk to people about uh, whether to fix the roads, come on. Uh, that is something we've just got to get over. Alice Rivlin, thank you so very, very much. <laughs>